Tonight I'd like to continue talking about Satipatthana Discourse, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and tonight uh, the theme is the Third Foundation. First foundation, if you can remember, is the body, of course. Second is feelings, that's unpleasant, pleasant and neutral feelings. Third foundation is mental states, mindfulness of mental states. The fourth foundation is laws of experience. When we talk about the third foundation, what we're talking about, really we get into the world of thought, emotions, moods, reactions, states of mind like boredom, wanting mind, you know, the mind that is fantasizing, into sadness, grief, anger, fear, joy, restlessness, doubt. All of these fit into this third foundation. I think it was for good reason that the Buddha started, uh, really waited for the third to be mental states and thoughts. Because they are very, very challenging to begin to work with. To begin to apply mindfulness to mental states, emotions, moods, is really quite a radical shift in an approach. It really uh, represents a completely different way of living. For most of us, if you look around the world, most people are almost entirely caught up in the world of thought. You know, they take their thoughts as real. Caught up. Thoughts are extremely habitual. One insight that we have on retreat. We may arrive thinking we're very creative and that uh, you know, we have clever jobs and we're very bright and a lot of teachers, social work and high tech people here and uh, you know, I think most people in the room are pretty competent in what they do. But when it comes to just paying attention to our experience, just to stay stay present with something even as simple as the breath or the body. You can see what happens. It's that very, very simple task becomes really, in some ways, the most difficult thing that we've ever done. And so what we're doing is we're really transforming our relationship to ourselves and to the world through this practice. The slippery thing about mental states why they're the third foundation and not the first, is that there's a strong tendency to identify with thoughts. There's also a strong tendency to identify with the body too. But the world of thoughts, mental states, moods, emotions, it's so convincing that those energies are me and mine. My boredom, my restlessness, my doubt, my anger. That's me. Obviously, the value of working with the body at the beginning, I've said things about that, but I just want to you know, remind us of that, which is the body helps in developing calm, focusing the attention. It helps give us a chance to strengthen a form of intelligence that many of us haven't cultivated or developed which is mindfulness. 
that capacity to pay attention to your experience in the present. And by focusing on the body, it's really possible to nurture that quality and to get a sense of what it means to be mindful. Sometimes it's very confusing, especially for people who begin practice, uh, what the difference between mindfulness and thinking is. You know, but by working with the body and sensations, we get a sense that when we're mindful of the breathing, we can feel the breathing. When we're mindful of the body, we can feel the contact with the floor, the cushion. In other words, when we're paying attention to the experience, just paying attention, not thinking about that contact with the cushion or floor, not thinking about the breathing, but simply open to it as it's unfolding from one moment to the next. And so when we begin to strengthen that capacity to, mind, to be mindful, well then the instructions, which you may have noticed this morning, change. And what we begin to do is include other experiences. And we begin to start opening to the full range of our experiences. And that's the direction Vipassana goes, as incredibly valuable as it is in working with the body. And it continues throughout one's life to be a value and a resource. To be a full human being, one able to receive and give. We have to be open to all aspects of our life. We have to be open to all aspects of who we are. And that, of course, very much includes the world of emotions, and reactions, moods, thoughts. And so, of course, the practice, if it's, if it's a full practice, it's, of course, going to include practice of trying to be more aware. If we're going to live in the present, we're going to be inwardly free, full, living life fully. Being open, being attentive, noticing, being sensitive of the world of emotions, for instance, is essential. Essential for being in relationship, it's essential for having some degree of peace within oneself, getting to know oneself includes getting to know one's emotional life. I mentioned in my first talk that when I was talking about effort, that I was, my early years, maybe the first five or six years or so, I was really fully in the striving camp of effort. I mean, completely lost in that camp of striving and pushing, really trying to make something happen. Good example of this, and this may be actually hard to believe. Uh, sometimes when I think about this, I, you know, I can't imagine myself doing it, uh, but I did do it. Um, one time, uh, even before IMS was here, I'd begun practicing uh, Vipassana, and I'd done a 10-day retreat, and I remember I went to Colorado again, and, and uh, met Joseph Goldstein there again. He told me about this three-month retreat that they were going to have in Maine. And without one iota of hesitation, there wasn't one fraction of a moment <laughs> of thoughts, considerations, reservations, absolutely no ambivalence at all. I said, great. You know, I'll be there. You know, had no money. Nothing, you know, but I was going to be there. So, 
I arrived very enthusiastic <laughs> and quite determined, extremely determined. And of course, I had absolutely no idea what I was getting into. Even I had a 10-day retreat, which definitely was not a three-month retreat. And we started sitting, and, and you know, I was working as a striver would very, very hard, and you know, sitting longer and longer periods of time. And concentration eventually started getting stronger, and you know, of course, physical pain, as we all know, starts arising in our sitting practice. And sometimes the longer you sit, you can see sitting all day how the pain can kind of grow sometimes or be predominant, right? So I was sitting pretty long and, and, the, and then, you know, dealing with certain kinds of pain. But then one time, like say about a month into the retreat, I started experiencing this strong pain right where I contacted the bench. Okay, I, ma I made this wooden bench myself. It wasn't like the high-tech version I have here. <laughs> with the, doesn't, didn't fold up. It had a couple of nails in it. And it was a slanted board, and that was my bench. Um, but it also didn't have a cushion which, if, if you notice, I have a cushion. <laughs> so this bench was a wooden bench. And I was sitting on it, and it, my butt really started to hurt. And the only impermanent thing about it was it kept getting stronger and stronger. <laughs> it was quite astonishing, actually. And within, like, a week, it started like in the middle of the, you know, it started hurting like maybe at the end of the day, first day or two, and then it started hurting in the middle of the day. And then pretty soon it started hitting really the first sitting of the morning. And when I say it hurt, it really hurt. It was like agony, total, absolute, 100% agony. And of course, I was sitting on a wooden bench, and of course there were cushions in the back of the room. And I was very convinced that what I was doing was a wise thing to do because <laughs> I was contemplating mindfulness of the body. And I really had a very clear object to focus on. Uh, it wasn't going away. Uh, it was very predominant. And my mind wasn't wavering much. And so I just stayed with it day after day after day after day, after day, after day. And I basically, you know, and it was like very, very painful. And then, finally, after about a month of putting up with this, every sitting, every moment, I finally decided, uh, I'm not sure how or why, maybe just an <laughs> ounce of wisdom arose, that I was going to look at my mind instead of my body. And what I saw was a mind that was screaming, screaming loudly, like in agony, tremendous aversion to the pain, and a lot of contraction in the mind. And it was not peaceful at all. You know, it was kind of concentrated, but it, it, there was no equanimity or relaxation. And so seeing that, you know, it opened me up to just having a little bit more compassion towards myself. And I went, and I found a cushion. And I put that cushion on a bench. Mm -hmm. And when I sat down, it was like I was sitting on a cloud. <laughs> I can still remember that moment. 
that sitting was so peaceful. <laughs> it really was. I really thought I was really going to get enlightened. So <laughs> it was, I was so relaxed. <laughs> Needless to say, that didn't happen. <laughs> but the rest of the retreat was quite a bit different. You know, I was able to begin to open up to other experiences during the three-month retreat, to other things that I was going through, being aware of some of the attachment to views and opinions that I had developed or different uh, attachments to reactions. But I, I began to really see the practice slowly. This took a while. Uh, slowly began to open to other areas within my body-mind process. Started opening up to my emotions and mental states a little bit more. Started to take those as a practice. And it was extremely liberating to do that. Extremely liberating to do that. Learning to meet our emotional life with an open heart, non-judgmentally, with full attention, is essential for freedom. We can't bypass that one. We can't just jump to peace. Really have to learn how to look at things as they are. And in terms of healing, one has to learn how to open to one's emotions, you know, to the moods that we drop in. We have to see our conditioned reactions as they unfold. And sometimes we have an idea about wanting to be more loving and more compassionate. But until you work with this third foundation, until you get to know yourself really well, until you really can begin to hold yourself in an open-hearted, less judgmental way. It's very difficult to feel compassion. You know, it's very difficult to respond that way because we really haven't worked with ourselves. You know, if we're judging ourselves, if we're caught up in that, it's so easy, of course, to judge others, to contract towards other people's suffering. Narayan introduced and talked about the five hindrances. I'm not going to say that much about them tonight, but uh, the five hindrances were, uh, maybe you know them already, wanting mind or, the fant or fantasizing and planning, aversion, uh, restlessness and worry, uh, sleepiness and dullness and doubt. The reason they're known as hindrances, the reason they're known as hindrances is simply that Oftentimes, our relationship to these energies is difficult. That's why they're known as hindrances. There's a tendency to get caught up in these energies. You can see that when you're sitting. It's so easy to get caught up in the world of fantasy, to think you're going to be happier if you rest there. It's so easy to get caught up in aversion, to get pushed around by the reactive mind, the mind that doesn't like the physical pain the mind that doesn't like what's happening. So easy to judge restlessness, get caught up in it, thinking that it shouldn't be happening, something wrong here, restlessness is here, I should be more concentrated. That's getting caught up, that's getting pushed around. When we get pushed around by those energies, when we get pushed around by the energy of doubt when it arises, you know, that thought that I can't do this, this isn't right for me, I can't do this. You know, that's not investigation, that's really insecurity, that's giving up, that's hitting something that's difficult and it's provoking some conditioning in us that says we can't do it, we're not up to it. 
You know, and that conditioning we often take into practice. It's a legacy from the past. But until we can begin to open to that energy of doubt or any of these energies with mindfulness and awareness, they stay as hindrances because they keep sucking us in. But if we can develop and train the mind to meet any of these energies with more of an open heart, with more attentiveness, we just open to it as it is, we begin to see into their true nature and we begin to relax. That's the equanimity factor. When we feel sleepy, we know it's not the end of the world now, right? It's not the end of the world. The first day, it might have felt that way. But by now, there's a little bit more acceptance, maybe, of that particular state. Same with restlessness. You've seen it over and over again. Maybe now we can trust ourselves a little bit more. Maybe we can ride through it. So when we begin to see these energies, these states of mind, these energies, when we can begin to see them as they are, without being caught up or identified with them, we begin to free ourselves. They're no longer obstacles. They're no longer hindrances. And it comes from being with them. You can't really tell yourself, well, I should be accepting of this. You have to simply apply mindfulness to that energy when it's there. Open to the feelings of restlessness. Open to the feelings of sleepiness. Really see the unpleasantness of it. Open to it. Just feel that energy, because that energy is like all energies. It rises and passes away. Rises under certain conditions and goes. Yeah, nothing magical. There's no me or mine in that. You know, look at yourself now. Feel yourself now. You're not the same person that you felt maybe at 2.30 this afternoon or 4 o'clock this afternoon when there might have been some sleepiness. Maybe there's sleepiness now and you were wide awake before. You know, it's a changing process. So opening to that fact. Very freeing. We suffer a lot when we identify with any of these hindrances, when we get caught by them. So often, in working with emotions, for instance, or even reactions, moods too, I mean all of this actually, uh, so often we place value judgments on them. You know, and the value judgments I mean, of course, are good or bad. It's not pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's good or bad. Some examples. Boredom. Good or bad? <laughs> Very few think it's good. Okay, there's a strong conditioning and a lot of value around boredom, particularly given the culture that we're in, right? Boredom is something you're not supposed to experience, and we create an entire culture around avoiding that particular feeling. You know, there's so many things that we can entertain ourselves or stimulate ourselves with. And a lot of this is really designed to move away from boredom. Okay. Interesting to note that that's simply a value judgment. Because when you begin to bring mindfulness to boredom, which is non-judging, it allows you to be with boredom. And that's very, very empowering. It's very freeing to learn how to be bored. It really is. It's not such a bad thing, actually. I kind of like it. <laughs> you know? Sometimes it gets tiring always being interested. And just feeling boredom. You, know, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to fix it. 
You don't have to find something interesting to do. You just feel bored. Talking to somebody, if you feel bored, okay, just be bored. <laughs> no big deal. You know, you don't blame them for being boring. Or, you know, you do, but you don't have to. You can just take responsibility for your own reaction, your own state of mind. Anger or fear, another state of mind, a bunch of states of mind. Uh, of course, for most, a lot of people consider anger or fear bad, but certainly in some ways, we, there are certain situations we might say anger is good and, and fear is good. Okay, but, there, but notice, there's a value. This is a good experience. This is a good emotion or a bad emotion. So anger and fear, most of the time, it's certainly when you come into the, the Buddhist world, a lot of times anger and fear, of course, is seen as a bad thing. Uh, sadness and loneliness. Yeah, those are good ones. Sadness and loneliness, of course, are considered not, you know, there's something wrong if you're sad and there's something wrong if you're feeling lonely. So, of course, they're bad. Uh, because we're supposed to be happy, cheerful, independent, not lonely, not sad. Okay? So we learn these things. You know, this is like the legacy of the past. We learn these to place value judgments on our emotions. Desire. In this culture, desire is definitely seen as a good thing. I mean, no doubt about it. I mean, the system really runs a lot on desire. You drop into a Buddhist world, different culture, different context. Desire, of course, is not good. Okay? It's bad. If you fantasize, that's bad. If you want, that's bad. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to be detached. You're not supposed to, it doesn't supposed to matter. Okay? You're not supposed to pursue pleasure. It's bad. So, again, value judgment. The problem with value judgments, placing value judgments on our emotional life, is that it gets in the way of opening to our experience fully. It gets in the way of opening to our emotions. Because if we think they're bad, it's very difficult to open your heart to something that you think is bad, something that you think you shouldn't have. But if we can just accept that that experience is there, that allows us to explore it more deeply. It allows us to open to it and really free that energy rather than having to push it away or contract around it. So often we find ourselves in this position because of these value judgments that we're either justifying our emotions, justifying our reactions, we're blaming ourselves, or blaming others for our emotions, for our reactions. That's a really common one. Blaming somebody else for how you react. It's interesting. We can actually blame somebody for coughing in the hall because they disrupted our sitting. Now, very, very common one. Looking outside of yourself, not looking at the reaction to it. Okay, so oftentimes we value, we blame. We criticize ourselves for the kinds of emotions, moods that we might find ourselves in. And we also reject them, straight out. Not acceptable. Can't look at that, don't want it. Okay. Those are all value judgments that we're placing. Tomato says something I think quite wonderful. Tomato is a Western monk in England. Well-being is simply knowing things as they are without feeling the need to pass judgment. Well-being is simply knowing things as they are without feeling the need, without feeling the need to pass judgment. 
Think about relating to your emotions that way. No need to pass judgment. Think about the relaxation. If you can be with whatever energy, whatever state of mind that arises within you, just even on the cushion alone, and really just see it as it is. Be with it as it is, without the judgment. There's a tremendous amount of relaxation and well-being in that particular experience. And that's, of course, the direction. It's not like you can get there tomorrow or maybe today. But it, it, the direction is that's the direction practice goes, is towards that freedom, that sense of well-being, that feeling of equanimity, that quality of equanimity, of being able to be with your experience as it is. It's tremendously empowering. As practice matures and grows, as you begin to do this practice over a period of time, one thing becomes very, very clear is that a significant aspect of practice is being mindful of your reactions to things, being mindful of how we relate to the present moment, how we're relating to the experience in the present moment. When we stop getting totally caught up in things, when the mind starts getting a little bit more silent, what it discovers over and over again is that it's reacting all the time. You know, it's reacting all the time. When it encounters something pleasant, the pleasant feelings, of course, the reaction is wanting more. You know, greed arises. When we encounter something unpleasant, of course, there's contraction, both in the body and the mind often. When we encounter something neutral, a lot of times there's indifference. There's kind of a disinterest, and maybe confusion in the mind. It's another response, another reaction. It's that second arrow that Narayan spoke about. That's the third foundation of mindfulness, the second arrow. It's pain going in, painful experience, but then the reaction to that experience. Restlessness arises, then the aversion, the reaction to it. So you have the mental state of restlessness, but you also now realize that being mindful of restlessness doesn't mean that you just focus on the restlessness itself, that energy. But now you can begin to include your relationship to the restlessness. The tendency to identify, the tendency to want it to, go, to be over, the judgments about it, the reaction towards it. And when you can begin to bring mindfulness to your reactions to things, what happens is we begin to taste real freedom. This is where faith and practice comes from. Because we, be, we begin to see that we don't always have to react in the same way. That it's possible to transform one's conditioning. You know, we react because of our past. We're constantly bringing our past into the present through the form of reactivity. And it really doesn't work. You know, it's really obvious sometimes when you overreact. Whenever you overreact, it's a really good sign that the past is there. You're bringing something of the past into the present. But reactions are like that in general, even when we don't overreact. We're conditioned to react 
to unpleasant experiences with aversion. It's possible to open to painful experiences without so much aversion. You know, even at times to be free of aversion. Just to be open to the unpleasantness of the experience. And that's the fruit of mindfulness. That's the freedom of mindfulness. The effect that mindfulness has on us is that it leads to deconditioning. That's the power of mindfulness. It's just like thinking leads to so a lot of elaboration. We can refine it, develop it, cultivate it. It's a form of intelligence, a useful form of intelligence. Okay? Mindfulness is also another useful form of intelligence. And the effect it has on our reactions, the effect it has on our life, is that we begin to let go. Our, our reactions begin to soften because we're no longer reinforcing that reaction. And we reinforce our reactions because we're unconscious. You know, and so if we react unconsciously, we're not aware of our reaction, what that does is strengthen the reaction. So the next time those conditions arise or something close to it, that reaction kicks in. And it just develops a groove and a habit. With mindfulness, what happens is non-judgmental attention. You're not feeding that reaction anymore. You're opening. You're bringing light and awareness to that reaction. And slowly but surely, it depends on how strong the reaction is and how deep the conditioning is, but slowly but surely, the conditioning begins to dissolve. The conditioning begins to dissolve. And what that does do for us in very practical ways is that it then allows us to respond to a situation rather than react to a situation. And by responding, what I mean is, is that there's awareness of what's happening in the present. There's some openness there. You know, we, can, we, can, uh, we can use the intelligence of awareness when we're not reacting, when we're not caught by our reactions. And so a lot of work in meditation over and over again, bringing your attention to how you're relating to what's happening. How you're relating to what's happening. Taking a look at that. Seeing that second arrow. If we don't pay attention to our reactions, we don't pay attention to our mental or emotional life, what happens is, and you see this in daily life all the time, and we talk to people about this incessantly, actually, which is that people have a very difficult time being mindful during you know, that full awareness practice of daily activities. What makes that hard, in a way, one is that there's not the mindfulness isn't particularly strong, but what makes it so hard is that we tend to get preoccupied in the world of thought. It's habitual. And we, and we get pushed around by our reactions. We get absorbed by different states of mind that come and go. And so what happens is, is that we're caught in it. There's not a lot of awareness of that inner world when it's happening. And so there's a disconnect from what we're doing. In other words, the mind is doing something while the body is doing something else. A good example of this might be, say you're, uh, I don't know who has these jobs, so I'm not talking about anybody I know. Uh, let's say somebody who has cleaning the dining room floor. Okay, I assume that's not a one-person job. I assume there's a team that is doing that. 
and you're one of, the, one of those members of that team, um, and you're doing your job day in and day out, and you know, you're being mindful in your body. You know, you're really paying attention to what you're doing in your body. You're sweeping. You're really in there, very present. But somebody keeps showing up late in that team. Okay? They keep kind of just coming in 10 minutes late, 15 minutes late, and then they just kind of chip in. They don't do a very good job when they do arrive. Um, and you, know, you, you start, of course, most people would have a reaction to that, right? They wouldn't like that. They would think it was not fair, right? And, and so, you know, and day by day, the person doesn't seem to be changing their behavior. Insight doesn't seem to be growing, uh, in, this, in this person anyway. Uh, and so, you know, you're sitting there steaming, you know, and getting really angry and having all sorts of dialogues with this person, and you're waiting until the end of the retreat so that you can really have a real one. Uh, and, you know, and you're really angry and you're really upset, but you don't know that you're angry or upset. You know, you're not being mindful of that. You're, you're with your body. You're, you know, you're in the present moment. But the fact is you're not really in the present moment if you don't know it. You know, because the present moment, one significant aspect of that present moment is how you're reacting, how you're relating to that person, you know, what that person is provoking in you. you know? and, and sure, the reactions, no, no reason to judge those reactions. But if we're not paying attention, if we think that practice is somewhere else, that we're supposed to be doing something else, uh, that we're supposed to be peaceful, we're supposed to be loving, and because of all those ideas, we're not just looking at the way things are. Well, we're deluding ourselves. We're disconnecting from what, from what is, from, from the actuality of things. And that, of course, just leads to more suffering, more discontent. And so, in that particular case, it would be very wise to really bring attention to the emotions that were being triggered, to be mindful of them, you know, to work with them, Keep opening to them. And of course, staying mindful of your body and all that. But here you're in a situation where the conditions are out of your control. You can't say anything to the person. You just have to put up with it. So what can you do? You can do something very creative, which is take responsibility for your reactions and really pay attention to them. And don't judge them, but pay attention to them. You don't have to act on them, but you can be aware of them and work with it. And so that's the creative. You know, that's when you really start getting into practice as life, you know, the fullness of practice. It's not something that you have to do uh, under only certain special conditions. You know, but you know, practice is always unfolding. Life is always unfolding. And we want to open to it in a full way, which definitely includes the third foundation. So one of the fruits of mindfulness is that it leads to deconditioning. In other words, we don't reinforce reactions. We soften around reactions. But there's another fruit to that form of awareness or intelligence, something else that comes out of it. And one of the fruits of mindfulness is protection. It has a protective quality towards ourselves and towards others. It's a protective quality. Let me read something uh, from the Dhammapada, something the Buddha said. Speak or act 
with ignorance. And trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with awareness, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. I really think he knows what he's talking about. I really do. I really think that's a, a very wise thing to notice. When we're mindful of our emotions, when we're mindful of our reactions, we stay out of a lot less trouble. A lot less trouble. I definitely take that from me. Um, it keeps you out of trouble. It protects you. It protects others because you're much more conscious of what your reactions are. You're much more conscious of what your emotions are. When we're reacting, when our emotions are unconscious because of our conditioning, our value judgments have been unexamined, we're constantly acting out. Again, constantly bringing that history, that past, into the present. Really, it's so many times when it's inappropriate. You know, we so often, you know, we talked about the precepts at the, at, at the beginning of this retreat, but what the pr precepts are intimately linked with, ethical behavior, uh, non-harmful behavior, what's, why they're not commandments is because they're linked to mindfulness. You really can't follow the precepts unless there's some degree of awareness of what you're doing, how you're acting, and there's really not a lot of awareness of how you're do, what you're doing or what you're acting unless you're aware of what's going on within you. If you're not aware of your reactions, you know, you're often not aware of what the consequences of those reactions are. But sometimes the effort to be mindful is simply not enough. You know, it's just we get caught by something very, very powerful. And you know, we're doing our best to be mindful, but you know, we need something else. We need to do something else with that particular energy. You know, trying to be mindful. And a good example of this is say working with the planning mind. You know, many people of course report working with that a lot in retreat. You know, and, and right now we're, the retreat's moving, we're still deep in the heart of the retreat, but quite often, you know, as the retreat goes on, on and unfolds, the, certainly the planning mind um, can kick in uh, quite loudly, actually, and quite frequently. So you could be mind, try to be mindful of that planning mind, which is how we, what we would tell you, you know, in interviews would say, okay, do your best to be as mindful as you can. But something else that we would say is exercise the wisdom of restraint. Exercise the wisdom of restraint. The Buddha talked a lot about the wisdom of restraint. And restraint, of course, is not repression. It's not repressing that energy of excitement or planning or any of that. It's not judging it. There's, remember, mindfulness, we're not judging planning. You don't need to judge planning mind. It's just a thought form. It's a bunch of energy. Some, has something to do with a future projection. Okay, that's all it is. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. But if we feed it while we're on retreat, you know, if we elaborate and get caught by it, it takes us out of the present. 
takes us out of the present, and it's not a useful thing to do on retreat. To spend your time planning is not a useful time. Because when you get out there, it's striking how different it is <laughs> and how it unfolds so differently than what your plans were. I mean, for everybody, that's how it works out. It never unfolds like you think it could or would. And so not to spend your time there says, okay, I'm planning. You know, it could be happening 10, 15, 20 times, 30 times in a sitting, planning my... I'm going to come back to the present. I'm going to be mindful of that planning. If it's really strong and I'm feeling caught up in it a lot, I'm going to go back into the body and I'm going to, I'm going to really try to work with staying in the present. Stay here, now. Use the fruit of all the days of practice that we've put in. That's the wisdom of restraint. That's telling yourself something that's wise. It's a wise use of your energy. And so working with that particular energy with wisdom. Mindfulness tells you that you're planning, but wisdom will say, hey, I should be back here somewhere. I should come into my body. I want to stay here. I want to do this walking meditation as fully as I can. I want to take advantage of the present, because that's all there really is, is the present moment. Working with strong anger. You know, it certainly comes up on retreat. You sit and you get quiet, and you know mindfulness opens us up. We open up to strong feelings of sadness, loneliness, but we also open up to feelings like aversion, anger, annoyance, irritation, fear. You know, very strong emotions can arise. We can do our best to be mindful, and we should. In other words, to be mindful means to see if we can open our hearts to that energy without judging it. Huh, anger's here. Notice how it expresses itself. One way it expresses itself is in the body. It's hot, it's contracted, it's tight. Another way it might express itself is anger or inner dialogues or blaming, um, tightening around the face, tightening in the hands. There's lots of ways that anger expresses itself. So if we were being mindful, we might notice that. But sometimes it's just overpowering. It keeps pushing us out of balance. It keeps pushing us out of balance. It keeps catching us. It's deep. It's conditioned. It's long. You know? And we get caught by it. A very skillful thing to do is to use the metta practice. At that time when you're feeling very aversive or agitated, or angry, or contracted, or tight, a wise thing to do is to take a few minutes in your sitting, you know, or just do some standing meditation and do some metta towards yourself. Just sending thoughts of loving kindness to yourself. You're not there trying to convince yourself that you're not angry. Okay. You're not trying to convince yourself that you're a loving person. Okay. Sometimes people think metta is like an affirmation, like, I'm okay, I'm okay. You might not be okay, <laughs> you know, really, quite frankly. You might be miserable and unhappy. That's, call it okay, but it feels miserable and unhappy. Okay. So it's not an affirmation. What metta is, of course, is it, it's a tool, just like the breathing. It's a tool to gain access to a quality that's within us already. Just like mindfulness of breathing. Is, breathing is a tool. It, it's, it's an object. It's some place where we can rest our attention so that we gain access to mindfulness or awareness or to the present moment. Metta phrases are the same. Everybody in this room has equal amount of metta. It's innate. But gaining access to that is not so easy sometimes. So the practice of metta is very useful for bringing a little bit more 
of an expans expansive quality to the mind. And that helps bring the mind a little bit more into balance. So that then it's easier to be more mindful and open-hearted towards the contraction that you might be experiencing. So we're bringing that loving quality into our life. We're not creating it, we're tapping into it. Moving through that contraction of anger and touching something that's really much more powerful than anger. Anger is conditioned. Metta isn't. It's innate. It's there all the time. It's a question of gaining access to it. So the metta practice would be a wise thing for some of us to do if we're caught up in a lot of fear or anger or strong aversive reactions. With practice, you know, with sustained practice and working with this third foundation of mindfulness, what we learn is that we don't have to be afraid of our emotions. We don't have to be afraid of our reactions. We don't have to judge them. We don't have to look towards them for, for a refuge. A lot of times we look for our emotions. We look for a happy mood. We take refuge in that. We have a pleasant experience. We take refuge in that. As Narayan said earlier, it's not a reliable refuge because it's conditioned and it changes and goes away. And so what we learn to do by paying attention to our emotions, moods, feelings, reactions, thoughts, what we learn to, by, by doing that, what happens is there's, there's an inner space that develops around those experiences. Deep relaxation and acceptance of the things of things as they are. And that, being able to see things clearly, with wisdom, with compassion for the suffering that you see, that's the reliable refuge. That you can trust. It's seeing things as they are that is really the true refuge. That's what leads to liberation. Not some mental state, emotion, mood that you might have, but it's the awareness that leads to the refuge. That's what brings peace. Okay, so let's uh, sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.